Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone and welcome to Raising Parents, the Parenting Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode. So we've spoken a little bit in past episodes on the experiences of children with learning difficulties in schools, but we haven't really spoken in a general sense on how to get children of all types interested in school. To help us in our conversation and share their expertise and student motivation is Professor Andrew Martin for joining me from New South Wales. Thank you so much for joining me on the show, Andrew. Hi, Dina. Now, you're a, not only are you a professor but you're also a registered psychologist as well. So what would your role be in giving parents some understanding when it comes to a child's lack of motivation through school? So I refer to myself as a research psychologist. And so I'm not a practicing psychologist, so I don't have a clinic. Uh, Instead, I'm a researcher, research only professor in educational psychology. And so the advice that I give to parents is based on not only the research that I've done, but also the research that I draw on to do my own research. And so I like to think that um, that I bring uh, some useful and helpful research findings to parents that they can then apply in, in their quite unique ways to their individual situation. And so that's my role as a, as a psychologist. Mm-hmm. And... During your profession as well, what has been some of the most common frustrations parents and possibly children even speak about when it comes to their lack of interest in school? Yeah, I think for parents, um, I think for parents, it's often the changes that can happen from uh, from the start of school to the end of school. And so if you think about those 12 or 13 years, there are some big developmental transitions that happen over that time. And with that comes uh, rising and falling levels of interest in and performance at school. And so parents are standing sort of on the sideline to that. Uh, that can be quite frustrating and also um, can also arouse some level of anxiety. Uh, and we often, and I am, I am a parent, and uh, but my kids are through school now. Uh, but uh, we often forget that that's exactly how it played out for us, uh, and so it should be no surprise. So I think that's one, one uh, on on the parent side. I think on the student side, uh, I think every every phase of development comes with its own challenges and opportunities. And so uh, for students, again, if you think about those 12 or 13 years, it's a time where they're trying to understand themselves. That's one of the biggest developmental tasks a human being has through that stage of development. Who am I? Where do I fit? What am I good at? What am I not so good at? What am I interested in? Uh, And so these 12 or 13 years of school is where so much of that is being figured out. 
and uh, and that's in in part it can be very exciting, but also in part it can be a little bit bewildering and confusing. And so I think that's a uh, a challenge for students over this time. Yeah, I think I was telling you just before we started recording on how my lack of interest in school was very much peaked within my high school years. Um, just nowhere near being as interesting as I find school now, as I find studying now. Um, now I've got different colored tabs. I'm writing notes up the wazoo, pages and pages of notes. But before it was me filling my books with drawings and random um noughts and crosses games that we would play in the classroom. So it's a huge difference when it comes to a child's lack of interest comes from a whole myriad of different things. And I'm really excited to talk about that even further. But before we do, I love to get started and sort of get to know you and your passion, your interests, as well as some of your recommendations uh, by playing the channel's favorite icebreaker. Now, to start off with, what is the most recent book that you've read? So the most recent book, and I get through books fairly slowly because I have about two minutes every night that I'll read and then I'll fall asleep. So I need I need books that can almost have a, a, a separate plot every two pages or keeps me going uh, pretty well. But a book that I've just finished is called uh, Boy Swallows Universe. And um, and that really, uh, that actually kept me awake long after my two or three minutes uh, before I fall asleep. And um, it's set in Brisbane. Uh, I think it's set in the 1980s or thereabouts. Uh, so, uh, so a time when I was a teenager, and um, and it's about a it's about a couple of kids and uh, and I guess uh, on the wrong side of the tracks and just their their journey through and and again figuring themselves out and where do they fit and uh, and uh, and triumphing in the end. In the face of adversity, I think I uh, that that book was really really well placed and, and nicely written. Great mm. plot. No, that sounds really interesting. I love when a book sort of keeps you up late at night. I think the one time that I read a book that kept me going all night until I realised the sun was about to come up. So there are books like that where it can really keep you up. So no, that sounds like a really amazing plot as well. Now, going on to a movie, what would a, a movie be that you would recommend to our viewers today? Well, look, I'm going to show my age and probably my my gender. I'm fitting into a, quite a stereotype here, but I'd say the the movie that I enjoy watching more than once is um, is The Godfather, uh, part one and part two. Um, why? I just find it Shakespearean. I just find that's this archetypal story of, of 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 good and evil, father and son, uh, love and loss. Uh, it it really has uh, really has everything, and it's and they're themes that are timeless. And so recently, I watched it with my my two sons who were early twenties, and um, and they were quite captivated. Largely because, again, it taps into these human dynamics, these human processes, uh, and um, uh, again, uh, you know, Shakespearean in capturing, uh, you know, it's epic, uh, but also in being epic, you know, these relationships play out in 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 all sorts of ways in everyone's lives. Uh, it's just that they've pinned it on mobsters and all that to make it uh, Hollywood. 
But uh, yeah, that that movie is something I can return to. Uh, you know, fairly. You know, once every ten years, I can return to that one. No, it always it always amazes me the fact that there are people in the world that haven't seen The Godfather, because it's just it's a movie like you said. The plot is amazing. The for me, it's the dialogue that always gets me, where it's like they're constantly just able to somehow say it with such belief the fact that they actually are these characters and you forget there's actors playing the role not living the lives of these actual mobsters so you always I'm always captivated by and I I'm similar to you I think I watch it once every few years or so when some of my friends say that they haven't seen it I sort of force them to see it but um yeah the first time I saw it was with my dad as well when he was trying to tell me that this is such a great great film and he's probably the reason why I'm studying film now at the end of it because just how much of the movies that he's shown me including the godfather especially the godfather when it comes to plot line and the dialogue and the different out of the norm scenes that sort of kick on half the time so no it's a great plot and I definitely love that you would recommend that movie so thank you for that thanks Dana <laughs> now who was a person that you find yourself looking up to either in your professional life or even your personal life? Yeah, and and I'll answer this in saying that I, I draw down on bits of lots of people. And so um, I feel there's so many people who who have something to teach me and no one person teaches me everything and so it'll range from my you know my high school ancient history teacher to my PhD supervisor uh, to my wife uh, to as my sons are you know moving into young adulthood them uh, and so there's uh, there's yeah I it I yeah, I, I guess I take a little bit from everyone, uh, and there are many more uh, that I, that I've just mentioned, and so and they'll pop up, and sometimes I won't even know them. I'll just see a way a particular person handles something, you know, you know, even a bungle in a supermarket. Sometimes I can just see they handled that a lot better than I would have, and, and so, um, so yeah, so and it's this every day. So rather than someone sitting on high as a as a sort of a, a role model that um, I look up to in awe of, I guess I I I'm in awe of different aspects of lots of people, uh, and they and they continue to present themselves in my life. I I think I hear that as an answer more often than I hear one individual person being called out for their attribute, and it's it's such a big thing for me as well, where it's like you're sort of. I'm not going to look at one person and be like, I want to copy exactly what you're doing. I look up to you and you're my role model for my entire life because there could be one thing that you like of what they do, but one thing that they, you know that you don't really want to look after. So I definitely agree when it comes to different role models for different situations and different attributes and different ways that you want to live your life. So yeah, it's it's such a great way and it's such a great answer as well. Thank you so much for that. Now, during your academic pursuit, 
What's been one course that has really stuck to you to this day and you find yourself sort of referencing it now and again? Yeah. When I when I was finishing my psychology degree, I majored in developmental psychology. So that's child psychology. And it was about it was about an eighty-five percent match for me. I really liked it, but it didn't really uh, inspire me. But I I took out my degree, and that's what I I you know I, I graduated as a developmental psychologist, if you like. And um, and so I but I was kicking around for a few years. You know, I was a research assistant, did some teaching, a little bit of psych practice work, and just didn't quite find um, didn't quite fit and. Um, I did. I started started a master's, and uh, because I was working as a research assistant in education, I did a master's of education um, before I even thought about going into research and doing a PhD. And um, I did this course. It was it was the psychology of learning and teaching, and so educational psychology is in faculties of education in Australia. It's not in faculties or schools of psychology. So I'd never touched ed psych before. And educational psychology is about how children learn and how young people learn. And it went into things like fear of failure, went into things like um, intrinsic and extrinsic motivation and reward and all these things. And that was 100%. That It explained me as a student because uh, true confessions in year 10 I was not a great student there was even a risk I wasn't even going to go into year 11 and um, and I know what it's like to fail I know what it's like to have to just claw your way back I know what it's like to be switched off and bored I know what it's like to be absolutely inspired by a teacher I, I know all of that as a, as a student and here was this course that was telling me why and uh, so I shifted from developmental psychology to educational psychology, and as they say, the rest is history. But this was a course, this, the psychology of learning and teaching. This this master's, um, you know, unit uh, that um, explained me, and and I find the penny dropped, the light went on, and then I I it, yeah, there was no looking back. That was the course for me. No, that's it's amazing how much you still remember from the course that really sticks sticks to you and really sort of sets your pathway into what you're going to do. That's definitely how I relate to it when it comes to from my switch from education to media and finding that one area that really changes how you think and how you sort of react to different situations and understand yourself as well. So, no, that is such a great answer and I definitely appreciate you uh, sharing that with me so thank you so much now we all know that everyone has a very different definition as to what parenting is and how what being a parent means so what would your definition in parenting be yeah it's a real it's a real multi task or multi-role job description that one I don't think I can string a sentence together about what it is I I see it very much in terms of lots of roles um, as uh, um, you know supporter advocate constructive critic boundary setter consequence deliverer when boundaries stepped over um, 
sometimes the only the last thread of a, of a kid's safety net may be the parent um, logistic um, uh, executive assistant uh, all of these things are the parent and ideally uh, we don't always get it right but ideally all underpinned by warmth love support and a um, a, 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 an inclination to, to, to admit to all of that to nurture and help your child grow that's it no book or journal will would ever accept that <laughs> but uh, but it really is that um, that multi-task multi-role multi-component gig mm-hmm. and then that being said what do you think expectant parents need to be aware of in that transition to parenthood yeah so i think um i think a real um, one thing is it's parenting is going to be a mixed bag there is no way around that um and uh we we have our hopes and our dreams and 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 hold on to them but um but in the end what you'll be given will be an individual who starts um carving out their own life making some great decisions, making some dreadful decisions, um, sometimes listening to, to you, sometimes not, uh, and um, with uh, many strengths, but probably there'll be a couple of things that need attention along the way that, that um, are not their strengths. And, um, and so I think really understanding the individuality of what is about to come into your life uh, and change your life and I think um, learning how to accept that, um, and um, and making the most of the opportunities this little individual uh, has presented uh, to presented to you, and so uh, you can wish away to your heart's content what you might want, but the reality is you're going to get what you're given and uh and the and making the most of that is um is 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 the challenge uh and uh and when you learn to accept that and 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 orient yourself to all right this this is who i have or this is who we have who are they and how do we work with that to 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 nurture and guide uh these uh these little folk no, that that is such great advice for a lot of parents because I think they're um I have a few friends who are sort of reach just reached the stage of being parents now and um the amount of parenting books that they're reading is insane on a nightly basis um also the advice that they're getting is pretty much saying the exact same thing every single time they're reading a book um but like like you said, nothing can be done until you're really until you're in that position, until you have your child yourself, and sort of realizing that everything goes out the window. Everything that you've ever learned goes out the window. Yeah, really get to know them, uh, and uh, because <clears throat> that's when you're in the strongest position to make the most of it as a parent. Mm-hmm. Well, that's some great advice. Thank you for sharing that. Now we're going to go into. The topic of today, which is getting kids motivated in school and how we can sort of achieve that 
um, and how children can also find, students can also find a way to find, feel motivated at school as well. So to start off with, what does it mean for a student to be motivated and engaged in their learning? Yeah, so I'll, I'll be as, as crisp as I can. Academics have been debating these two terms for 50 years, but I'll tell you the world according to Andrew, uh, which so motivation um, is very much that inner drive and inclination and desire uh, at, to and energy to learn, to work to potential and so on. And engagement uh, uh, is the, the behavioural um, aspects that follow from this drive. So motivation might be your interest and your enjoyment and your valuing of school and, and learning. And engagement might be how much effort you put in, how hard you try, uh, how well you organise yourself. So motivation is very much that inner thing, that inner drive and engagement is the manifestation of that by way of things like effort, self-organisation, persistence, and so on. Mm -hmm. So they're completely two different ways of sort of reacting as positively in the role of being a student. Yeah, and yeah, they're highly correlated. So, so if you if you're motivated and you're enthused and you and you think what you're doing is important and you're enjoying it, that follow engagement will follow from that uh, nine times out of ten. Uh, and so they do come along as a package, but I do uh, I do tell parents and teachers uh, understand they are different because if you need to get in and if there's something going on uh, and things aren't travelling so well, you really do want to know is it something about their attitude, the way they're thinking, how much they're enjoying something, or they might value something but might be having trouble with persistence or with the self-organisational skills that are needed. So often when you start diagnosing, particularly when problems kick up, it's helpful to understand is it, is it the inner and energy side of things or is it the behavioural side of things because that directs a lot of traffic as to what you do in response to that. Okay. And how influential are parents when it comes to the their role in the child's motivation in school? Yeah, so parents, parents have a big role. So in all our research, um, you know, we routinely find that the role of parent is significant in students' motivation and engagement. And so, and that's the case for a number of reasons. Um, one is uh, parents will, will, for example, verbalize things and say they will talk about why school's important, why learning's important. Um, they might uh, be a shoulder to cry on when you get a bad result in your maths test. And so they provide the emotional support. Uh, for you to pick yourself up and, and get going again. Um, parents also demonstrate modelling. So children will watch how their parents persist at something that's difficult uh, or not. And so parents are a powerful modelling factor. Um, and so, uh, and don't forget parents often, um, uh, you know, they often will have to jump in and provide some logistic help um, and, uh, and, and, or, and, or go to the school and talk to the teacher. So parents are involved in that way as well. Uh, so for all sorts of reasons, parents have a, a big impact on motivation engagement. Um, but I hasten to add, not a total impact. Uh, and so, um, in fact, the largest impact on the student's motivation engagement is actually the student themselves. This is why I come back to remember they are a, they are persons separate from you. Uh, they have their own desires, their own interests, they have their own um, priorities, they have their own um, 
personal skills uh, and, uh, and, and attributes and characteristics that have a huge bearing on how motivated and engaged they are. So, uh, so the student does have a big part to play, uh, but parents certainly have a part to play, as do peers and as do teachers. Mm-hmm. So it definitely comes to my mind when it comes to me trying to remember what, how I sort of was as a student. And there's that whole view of the amount of times I heard school is important by my parents as a constant um as a constant phrase to try to motivate me to study, try to motivate me to try to be better because it can help you in later on in life. And little did I know that that would actually be true. But as a teenager or as a um, rebellious teenager, I will say, there's that idea that it has no value in what I want to do. For example, if it's um, I want to study something a bit more on the musical end or something a bit more in the uh, f- using your hands rather than using any using your brain to motivate you. So there's that whole idea of what you're talking about when it comes to interest and when it comes to what they find interesting and what they want to do. So how does that play a role when it comes to the parents' influence when a child is trying to be motivated through the through their lack of motivation? Yeah, and, and this a lot of things in what you've just said. Um, so the first one, getting back to an earlier point I made about different stages of development. And so when we do our motivation engagement research, and this is among hundreds of thousands of kids now, uh, you know, I've been researching this for about 30 years. And so adolescence, um, there is worldwide, on average, a decline in motivation and engagement as, as, as young people head into sort of age 14, 15, and so that is that developmental decline is normal uh, because uh, for all sorts of reasons. First of all, the world's suddenly becoming really interesting to you as an adolescent, and school has a bit of a hard time competing with that. Um, the other is um, we you know, part of that developmental phase is um, in many ways safe, safe uh, and low-level rebellion is. Um, is how you learn about yourself, where you push a, a safe boundary and realize, well, that didn't work. So for example, for me in year 10, what happens if I do no schoolwork? Well, guess what? I failed. And so, so, and I didn't like that. I didn't like that. And, um, and so, as I said, year 11, you know, was a, a, a long haul back. Um, and so, um, so, it is a developmental task for adolescents to really start trying to figure themselves out. And you can sort of only know that to, and um, by saying, well, where, where's the boundary conditions? Where's, where's the cliff? Where, where, am, where is the point where this is me and the point where, no, I don't like that. That's not me. And so, uh, and so you're trying all sorts of things, often, you know, new friends, new, new um, clothes, new hairstyles, um, you might be pulling a bit off your schoolwork because that's not, you know, that's not part of your part of the, you know, your your your, uh, you know, script at that point. So, um, but what I do say to parents and teachers is that doesn't mean we just give up on kids in adolescence. Say, well, it's a normal developmental de- decline. Let's wait for them. You know, see how they emerge in a few years. I always say. Um, uh, it's better. So even though there's a decline for many kids, maybe most kids, 
um, we want them coming off that decline um, from a high base. So you do actually still want to encourage them and so on, because uh, because the 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 less steep the decline, it means when they decide to do some work, it usually year eleven or so, um, they're coming off a higher base and there's not so much ground to cover. So we never give up, even though there is a decline. Um, the other thing I'll say about parenting is there are a lot of what we call sleeper effects. So there will be things that were told to you at age 12, 13, 14, 15, that age 23 pop up and you actually operationalize that advice. Uh, and so um, one of the frustrating things with parenting is you wish that you would say something and that and your child would do it immediately. Um, so often they don't. So it may be years before they decide to adopt that. But I tell parents, stay the course, the truth will out. Uh, and so uh, that's getting back to this parent of just being an, always there, an advocate, hanging in there. And so, uh, and you just said it yourself, the things, the, the messaging that you were getting from your, from your folks um, wasn't cutting through when you were in year nine. But why would it in many ways? Um, you would you were meant to be doing other things, finding out where's the boundary, where do I, who am I? But at the point you're starting to say, right, I'm now getting back together. Um, what are some good attitudes and all that to have? Well, guess what? You reach back to the attitudes your parents were instilling in you because they were planning that button a long time ago. Um, peers come and go. Those parenting messages, if they're positive and constructive and affirming over time, you know, it's hard for someone to escape those, just as on the downside of that problematic parenting and negative messaging and all that, it's hard, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to shake that off as well. So, um, but we'll be glass half full in this session. If you get the messaging right and you stick to it, again, it's the number of times late adolescents and early 20s, they would start picking up on those again. Um, after they've been through that normal phase. So I've sort of been talking in sort of swirling and, uh, and meandering ways, but um, the idea is that uh, at different points in time, children will switch off and switch on. And through all of that um, consistent, constructive, affirming uh, messaging from parents, uh, that holds sway in the long haul. And again, it's a long game, this parenting caper. Uh, and dare I say... Um, you know, development, you know, brain development, for example, doesn't really finalize till till mid-20s. And so when we think of it in that way, goodness me, when you even when you're 16 and 17, you're miles off that final, um, that final. So there's a, I will also say young people don't always get it right at school. Uh, as sometimes it's after school that people find their feet. And again, if they've had fairly consistent supportive uh, parenting and caregiving through that. And so, you know, they're still uh, constructive and functional young adults, even if they, you know, they're, they're, they're not at uni. Um, there's still a lot of time to get your act together uh, because there's still a fair bit of brain development to be had um, and, um, and life is long. Uh, so I will say sometimes it's not always at school that, that young people get it together. The number of people that have got together after that there have been many. Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to finding that balance, I think you were speaking about a little bit earlier when it comes to intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. How do you find that balance between a child's internal curiosity 
and using rewards or even incentives to maintain that engagement that they that they have at the moment. So the the holy grail, the gold standard, um, is intrinsic motivation, and so ultimately that's what we'd like um, our children uh, to to have as the factor propelling them. And so, um, and the reason for that is that um, there's a big self-determination aspect. When you feel you're in the driver's seat and you're making these choices and, 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 and it's a topic that interests you, that's gold standard energy. That's gold standard motivation. Uh, the sky's the limit when that's happening. But sometimes that doesn't happen. And so what do we do then? Uh, and so it's extrinsic uh, motivation includes things like rewards and so on. And, uh, and so um, there are times when, when uh, incentives or positive consequences um, are appropriate. So sometimes if you want to kickstart um, something that doesn't exist, so you, you, if, if they're not motivated at all, it's hard to tip immediately into intrinsic. And so you might have some, uh, you might have some, uh, some incentives to do a bit of schoolwork or do 30 minutes of homework or whatever. Um, and so uh, sometimes that's needed to kickstart it. For some at-risk kids where you really do need um, uh, something extra to, to get them started, that's also uh, so reward and incentives might be appropriate there. Um, but you do look to start phasing them out ideally once they start experiencing some success. Don't um, never underestimate that success, is, kids are suckers for success. They will gravitate to subjects and teachers where they do well. And so the aim is to uh, start getting kids to do something well, maybe with an incentive, and then phase out those because they because there's, there's uh, nothing succeeds like success or feeling efficacious and competent. But there are some guidelines around those rewards. Uh, and so, for example, they shouldn't be too big. They should be just very almost tokenistic, where you're just um, sort of sending a, a you know an attractive low-level signal. And so, for example, it might be, hey, you pick the takeaway meal this Saturday night, or something that's sustainable. Um, and uh, it can't be so big because the other is that um, there's a dosage effect and a diminishing effect. So. You know, if if it's too big, um, then it's actually hard to, you know, the effect of that might start wearing out. And it's hard to find something bigger than that to 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 outweigh it. Um, the other is I try and look at, as I indicated, not not product rewards like oh here's twenty dollars or whatever, more process rewards. They like hey you you pick. We're going to have Thai or pizza or Italian or ribs. It's your pick. It's something that you can build into a process that 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 that's more sustainable. Um, and I think the other is um, uh, uh, the reason we don't want too much reward is the minute reward comes into it, it's it's experienced or felt like a form of extrinsic control. Um, and so we, we need to understand when, when humans feel it controlled, motivation starts sliding. Uh, we don't take well to feeling controlled. And and so with extrinsic incentives and reward, you've got to understand it's a form of our external control. So we don't want to overdo it or, or overcook it too much uh, because it, the perverse effect is that actually you could be 
driving motivation further down than it already was. So, so they have their place, but keep them low level, built into everyday life or, 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 or processes, and uh, and look to phase them out as ideally as kids feel a little more efficacious and become more intrinsically oriented themselves. So it's very different to when you, when a child is saying, when a parent is saying to a child, okay, if you get above a B in your grades, then I'll allow you to take a extracurricular, for example, like I'll allow you to take violin um, after school or allow you to do soccer after school. So if you hold that to them and they start enjoying that sport or that extracurricular, they might start focusing a whole lot more on that rather than school again. So yeah, okay, yeah, and so well, and so um, so the the other thing, uh, and thanks for bringing this up. The other thing is I would not tie any reward to a, to a mark, never, um, because a couple of things happen there. Um, uh, for some kids, they get to a, a point where they realise I'm never going to get that B, uh, so they give up. Uh, and so, uh, or the other is, okay, they get that B. Um, uh, does that mean you raise the stakes the next time for a B plus? Or and so it ends up being a a um, a game you can never win because because it maxes out at a certain point and then then it all starts falling over. So I'd also tie any reward or incentive to process. So for example, how much time you might have spent um, studying, not for the mark. Uh, you get for it. And so that sends very positive messages because another thing that um, that uh, that uh, can drive motivation down is an excessive focus on marks. Got to understand, don't forget, a mark is another extrinsic um, uh, aspect. Uh, it, uh, it's a reward or a punishment in itself. Uh, and so uh, now marks are important for a lot of, lot of ways. But we find the students that actually focus on the process and the effort and not so much the mark, they actually end up getting the best marks. So the student they understand the scoreboard takes care of itself if they get the process, if they get the game, the player run of the game right. Uh, and so they're focusing on effort and strategy and all these things um, and not so much on marks. So I wouldn't tie my, um, incentives to marks, tie it to process, mm-hmm. like effort and strategy. Um, and also uh, think about the reward because some things, so extracurricular activities are a great thing in itself. So you probably just want to let kids do that anyway. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to tie something that's important. You wouldn't want to make something that's important the reward itself because if it's important, it should be in their life anyway. So don't withdraw that, withhold that. So you'd find something else to, to tether um, rather than just the extracurricular. Uh, so uh, yeah, yeah. No, I wish that um, parents heard that when I was, I wish that my parents heard that advice when I was a kid, when it came to marks not being important, because that definitely would have changed my view on school a whole lot more, I think, when it comes to um, just being graded and how that affects a whole lot of different things that sort of come up when it comes to the rewards. So yeah, that um, that's some great advice, because I think a lot of parents are really needing to hear that when it comes to how the school system goes and yes I think I understand the fact that grades are important when it comes to getting into universities and colleges and those aspects but to tie a whole child who doesn't really like school to a mark that's saying that a C is not good or a B is not good is a whole other 
conversation in self that we could possibly get a whole research paper done on that to begin with. <laughs> it absolutely is. And don't forget what got you that mark to get into uni. It was the effort. It was the strategy. It was your attitude. It was all those attributes. And it's those attributes that actually walk with you through life. They're the factors. The mark is neither here nor there in many ways. It's the it's it's what you invested to get that mark um, that um, they're the attributes that um, that if if you sustain them through life, you're gonna do okay. Mm -hmm. Perfect advice. I I love that. So, what elements contribute to a positive learning environment at home that sort of encourages and motivates a child's engagement and motivation to keep ongoing with school? Yes, and so. There's a there's an expression um, we we know the expression you can lead a horse to water but you can't make it drink and so we know that and um, and I used to roll that out a fair bit if I was backed into a corner and and I'd throw my hands up oh well you can lead a horse to water you can't make it drink um, and uh, if there was a particularly you know stubborn problem or or or, or, or resistant uh, student um, and one teacher. Um, responded to that. Uh, I was doing a professional development with some teachers at a school and uh, she put her hand up and she said, um, that may be the case, but you can salt the oats to make it thirsty. And that was an epiphany for me as a researcher and as a parent. Um, okay, yes, you can't force your child. I can tell you, if you force your child, the wheels will fall off. Um, that's a very uh, aversive form of uh, you know, a, a controlling factor, again, that reduces motivation because we don't like feeling controlled. So where does that leave us parents? Well, we can salt the oats to make it thirsty. We can create climates and conditions in the home that, um, that, uh, that mean our child will do a little bit more rather than a little bit less. Uh, and so, and if they if that happens week in week out over twelve to thirteen years, wow, what a journey! Um, and so, uh, so creating conditions and climates in the home. And so, what what do those look like? Well, I think first of all there are logistic conditions. And I and I as I'm talking about this, I'm mindful there can be big socioeconomic differences here because some. Homes are amenable to have separate study areas, and let's buy you. You know, we'll get an extra, you know, laptop, and you can work on that, and and or special headphones you can put on so you don't. Some homes have all that, and so they're logistically placed a little better. Other homes aren't aren't in that position, and so the logistic aspect needs to be thought through a little bit more. And sometimes schools have to step in here. They might have after class homework, uh, you know, study sessions and all that or resources that you can borrow from the school and so on. So there's the logistic side of it. There's the um, instrumental support side of it. And so when uh, when a problem arises, the parent can provide help. Uh, and so uh, that help might be just sitting down with them and going through some homework. The help might be to go to the school and say, look, we're really struggling with this. Um, you know, that can we have a chat about what's going on and how we can work through it. Um, or it might just be buying, you know, a USB stick or something. So there's the instrumental uh, support. 
And then there's the emotional uh, support, the emotional environment. And so, for example, what happens when um, your child doesn't get the mark they want or you wanted for them? How do you react to that? Um, is it uh, you know is it in a very supportive and and uh, and understanding way, but still gently encouraging them to and diagnosing the situation? Did they put in enough effort? Did they do this or that? And being very solution focused, or are you focused on saying, oh, you know, what are we going to do? Why do we bother? You're a useless kid. All that sort of stuff. Well. There's two, there's, there's two doors you can walk through. One will have very positive and, and uh, uh, positive effects that, that help your child um, for the long haul, and the other will you know, generally have motivation-diminishing effects. Um, so that's the emotional environment that uh, the children operate in. So there's some examples of what I mean about salting the oats to make it thirsty. In everything I've just said, at no point have you forced the child to do anything. But you have created an environment where um, it makes it a little bit easier for them to do a little bit more rather than a little bit less. Mm -hmm. So now we're going to be looking into the practice and habit part of our show. Now, what is a practice that you do to motivate yourself to find that balance in your autonomy? Yes, I guess, and I can reach back to myself as a as a as a high school student. Um, I did learn about myself, and this is why I mentioned later when I did a course and it told me why, I did learn that the more I focused on the marks and beating others and all that sort of stuff, I, the more anxious and fearful of failure you became, the stakes became higher, and it just wasn't the right energy uh, to be doing stuff. The more I focused on my own game, uh, my own process, my own strengths, and try to do a bit better than I normally do, uh, or uh, th than I'd done before. Um, that seemed to work. Um, Twenty-five years later, uh, we embarked on a major research program into personal best goal striving and personal best goal setting in the classroom. Uh, little did I know that that's what I was doing uh, very informally as a high school kid. Um, and so PB goal striving and PB goal setting is something we find very effective. Um, having students, their own, they, they are their own benchmark. Your aim is to do a little bit better than you did before. Yeah, that might be a mark, but I actually probably preferably it's in terms of process. So doing an extra one hour homework at the weekend or writing one extra draft of the essay before you hand it in. Um, so process PBs, we do a lot of research into. So that would definitely be a low-hanging fruit strategy to, to motivate myself. How, how did I do last time? How can I do a little bit better this time? So there's a lot of um, reflection when it comes to when it comes to your uh, understanding as to how you did before and how you can improve a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And um, and so sometimes, yeah, you need to be fairly honest with yourself about where, where you're at and also honest with the goal you set. Yes, you would like to be miles ahead than where you are, but remember, that will come in time. Um, just raise the bar a little bit on yourself this time. Uh, you know, 10 minutes extra homework, even though ultimately you might be aiming for an hour each night extra. Well, maybe that's not sustainable or realistic right now. So let's raise it 10 minutes and see how we go. 
Oh, that's perfect. Now, what are three good things that you would find this practice really helps in terms of motivation? Yes. Yeah, so first of all, it's a known goal. So if your goal is to beat someone else in the next test, if you think about it, you don't know what mark they're going to get, which means you don't know actually what the goal is you're trying to strive towards. And in our research, it's very, uh, it, it's very evident that clear and known and specific goals are the most effective. So if you can say exactly what you're aiming for, that's an effective goal. Uh, so if you try and outperform someone else, because you don't know what they're going to get, immediately your goal is inferior. But you know what mark you got in the last test, so you know what one to beat, or you know exactly how much um, study you did last Sunday, uh, and so you know how much more to do this Sunday if you want to get a PB on that. So that's the first thing. It's a known goal. The other is um, PB goals um, are energizing. And so we find that when you are trying to improve on yourself, there's a certain energy there that's very positive and back to intrinsic, very intrinsically oriented. Um, and the third one is we are motivated to reduce what we call dissonance or gaps in our lives. So the reason goal setting works is because you create a gap in your life. It's a gap between, and a PB is a gap between where you are now and where you want to be. And we are motivated to reduce those sorts of gaps. And so if so, if you think of your life, so when we look at experts in any field, they're constantly creating these little gaps, they close it. They set the next gap, they close it, and up they go. And so that's the third aspect of PB goals, striving, setting and striving that's very effective. And in contrast to that, what is a challenge that you would find goes through when this practice, when you're trying to find your self-motivation, find your self-motivation? Yes, so um, you don't always hit your PB goal. And so uh, how do you deal with disappointment? How do you deal with frustration? Um, sometimes a bit of anger, you work really hard and you and you didn't uh, attain what you wanted. And so um, being able to collect yourself uh, and have a good look at what it was that might have held you back Maybe it was the goal you set. Maybe you were just shooting too high for now. And you think, all right, that'll come in a month. I'll just lower it a bit. It's still an improvement. I'll pull it back a bit. Maybe it was how much effort you put in. Maybe it was the way you you uh, put that effort in. So it's not only a matter of spending two hours at your desk doing homework or, or 10 minutes doing homework if you're a younger kid. It's the way you do it or what distractions are on in the background. And so maybe it's the strategy that needs some work. So they're the sort of things that I would look at uh, if uh, you didn't get your PB goal. Mm -hmm. And how do you think that this practice impacts your own perception in life? Yes. And so, okay, here's a big question. Is education a journey or a race? And you can almost separate parents into that perception. They will see educate their child's education as a journey, some of them, and others will see it as a race. You've got to beat others. You've got to do as well as you can. You've got to get the top mark. I think a PB gets the sweet spot of that. And so it's a journey because it is your own process. It is self-determined by you. You have set your own goal. Uh, you are your own benchmark. But it's a little bit of a race with yourself. And so, it, it, so PB is retaining the energizing properties of competition, 
um, but they bring it back to a very intrinsic and mastery aspect. And so students that see education and parents only as a race, we find they can run out of puff um, if there's not enough journey and mastery and intrinsic in it. Uh, and so at the same time, there are some students that are so mastery oriented, um, you know, they got so immersed in answering the first essay in the exam, they didn't answer the other essay. And so so at a certain point, a mastery oriented student needs to just lift their head and say, well, what what do I, you know, what outputs do I actually need to gain? So I reckon a PV gets that sweet spot between journey and race. Oh, that's perfect. Now, going into our open mic section of the show, um, this gives you a chance to talk about anything that you're passionate about, anything that you feel would like to be shared with the audience. So in the last minute or so, I'd love to give you the floor and share the topic that's on your mind for today. Look, I'm, I'm going way off track here, and um, and so something I'm passionate about. I'm passionate about a number of things. Um, uh, one one is is going to the beach and body surfing. Uh, I'm too old. I tried I tried to get back to board riding, but I, I cracked a rib. So that, that that those board riding days were over. So it's body body surfing for me now, which I just love. What's this got to do with anything? Um, so when you're out in the when you're out in the surf, um, every nothing is ever the same. So it's a great distraction. You just because you've got to focus on what's coming. Um, the elements are always changing. There's always another wave coming, uh, and so this you're grounded in the present moment. It's it's hard for me to worry. You know, worry about things that are coming up or ruining things that have happened when you're just constantly having to look, where's the next wave and, and where should I be positioned and you know, who's around me and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so being in the present moment um, is a pretty special thing. And going to the beach, I'm passionate about and body surfing because when I'm out there, um, the future and the past don't really, really exist. So that that's the thing that's special for me. So how is this related to parenting? Um, one thing about parenting is um, kids know, research is clear, kids know when their parents are stressed and parents' stress doesn't have a great effect on, on kids. Um, and so uh, I talk to parents, although we're so often focused on our kids, as we should be, um, but don't forget to look after yourself as well because when you're feeling a bit better about things, you're a little more relaxed about things. Um, you do make better decisions as a parent. You are less reactive and sometimes less explosive when, when the kid really stuffs up. Um, you are more considered um, and, uh, and uh, getting back to that climate and conditions in a house that, that, that cultivates, um, you contribute to that when you're feeling a little better about things. And so that idea of you, know, you put your oxygen mask on first before you the, put the oxygen mask on your child. So, um, so I'm drawing a really long arc from being at the beach, being in the moment, being, you know, doing stuff that I like, stuff, stuff that really absorbs me because in a weird sort of way, I reckon I, every time I do that, I've probably been a better parent that night. 
Uh, and uh, just because just for a moment, I've just, just been me, I've been immersed, I'm not worried about the future, I'm not ruining the past, I'm there. So that's what I would tell parents. And, and for me, it's just being out there looking for the next wave. Well, that is perfect advice. That really fits in with a lot of what we're talking about today when it comes to trying to find their own motivation. And that certainly fits in with being a parent as well, trying to find your own motivation to being a person, not just a not just a parent. So, you know, that is some great advice and some great takeaway for a lot of parents listening to this today as well. So thank you so much, Andrew, for joining me on the show today and for sharing so many different tips as to how parents can be help a child see school a little differently and help them find their own passion and ignoring grades and ignoring what grades mean and what they could and not putting so much of a value on it. And I think that's such a great advice for us to end with today. Um, if there's a way that audiences would like to talk to you even further to ask questions about things that I may have missed or I, I definitely have missed or to even explore the conversation a little further. Is there a contact information that I'm able to give out? So I'm at the University of New South Wales, and so you'll you'll catch me there. And um, and I've also written a few books for parents as well, and so you'll they're pretty easily easily findable. Uh, so they're probably the two uh, the two avenues that um, that you can uh, catch my further ideas. Oh, that's perfect. Well, I'll definitely have those down in the link below just in order for easy access for our audience. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. I will see you all in the next episode. You've been listening to Raising Parents, the Parenting Science Insights podcast, produced by the Parenting Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 life management perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify and other podcasting apps available on your devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people find it so that we can grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website at pa.lmsl.net where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent. Thanks for tuning in.